And the guy next to me who I had never met but heard about was a guy named Tom Seaver. And I looked at him and I said, oh my <laughs> God. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode here on You Think, presented by Audiorama and Body Armor. Um, quick update on the Olsen family sports experience. We are um, in the middle of a big run in our Pop Warner tackle football playoff bracket here in Charlotte. We won this past weekend. We played really well. We played a really good team that hadn't lost. Um, I think they had lost one game in like the last couple of years, um, pretty good team, a lot of good athletes, good coaches. And so we knew that was going to be a tough game, but the kids came out and played really well. So that was the second round. Now this week is probably the week. This, this team we played during the course of the season, we only beat them by one touchdown. It was a close game. Again, talented, a lot of really good players. So got to have a great week um, of practice Saturday morning, eight 30 semifinals of the city pop Warner championship here in Charlotte. So we're fired up. The kids are getting better. They're buying into what we're doing, watching a lot of tape last night. My wife looked at me. She's like, are we ever going to hang out? And I was like, yeah, I said that that's on me. Like Monday is my day off. And I was literally sitting home at like six o'clock on my kitchen table, watching game film and making play call sheets of every play the opposing team ran and where they run it and how they run it and the formations and what numbers. And I, I finally had to catch myself and be like, this is fifth and sixth grade football. You need to go sit on the couch <laughs> with your wife and have a glass of wine. So we are in the full court press of bad pun, but of football. So that's that. Uh, both boys have their end, um, their last fall baseball tournament. So that will wrap up baseball for the fall. We'll, we'll kick back up here after the new year and my daughter, I got to watch her play soccer on Saturday. My flight was late enough before I had to fly out to green Bay to call that game. Got to watch her, her team won three to two. She played pretty good. So we are, uh, we are in the thick of it. So I will let you guys know. Hopefully we have a fun update for all of you. Uh, <laughs> next week's show coming off the semifinals of the city championship. So hang in there and we'll keep you stay tuned. Uh, today we have an awesome guest. Uh, it's actually one of the first guests I ever reached out to. I think, you know, when, when we were putting together this show and we, and we wanted to find that balance of storytelling, but also that, that balance of tools and resources and, and things that families can use the, the informational component of the conversation. Um, any of you who have followed, you know, watched any NFL games or pitching, you know, the name Tom house, uh, Dak Prescott's little hip dance before the games, walk guys walking around making, you know, goalposts and flexing their shoulders back and forth and the heavy balls. I mean, all that stuff that you see in today's modern football and also, you know, um, major league baseball, all that stuff came from Tom house. He's, he's known as the father of the modern day pitching mechanics. Also just kind of throwing mechanics. He's a baseball guy, but he also, is just as you know impactful and influential in the world of football. So to be able to get Tom to join us, I mean, he was the pitching coach for Randy Johnson, Nolan Ryan, you know, and, and the NFL side, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Dak Prescott. I mean, all these guys, he worked with Cam Newton one year, which is where I first met him um, after Cam had shoulder surgery. So it was just, it was a cool storytelling, um, listening to him, his impact on the youth, on the youth scene, um, trying to educate families, educate young kids into the best practices of, of not only mechanics, but health, uh, maintaining shoulder health, proper mechanics. Um, it was just a really fun conversation. So I think you guys are going to love it again. Tom house, um, is this week's guest here on you think, uh, thank you as always to our sponsor of body armor, body armor, not only fuels this show, but they fuel all of my local youth sports team. So we're super grateful that they have come on and been such a great partner of ours here at you think um, there's a lot of choices for sideline sports drinks, our family's personal favorite, my family, my, my personal favorite is the orange mango. My kids love strawberry banana. It's all they want. Gas station, grocery store, mom, do we have any body armor for the game? Do we have any body armor for practice? Um, they love it. I love it. Our teams love it. And uh, we're super thankful that they are taking this journey with us through the world of youth sports. Um, as you guys know, Body Armor is made with coconut water, B vitamins, no artificial sweeteners. And you can go to drinkbodyarmor.com for more information. So now please enjoy this conversation with the father of modern day throwing mechanics, Tom House. Tom House, thank you so much for joining us 
on you think. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. So, so I, we, me and you first met, and I said this to you before the show started, um, you know, God, it was probably five, six years ago. Cam was yes. coming back off his, off his, um, off season surgery and was working on some mechanic stuff. And I'd be out there training on the, on the field at bank of America stadium. And you and Cam would be out there. And I just remember, you know, glancing over and watching you and all the, all the technique stuff, anyone who follows you on Twitter or follows your work, you, you know, obviously your routine is what's kind of built. We're going to dive into a lot of that, but you and I first started talking, I told you I got two young boys that play baseball and I was picking your brain about throwing mechanics and pitching mechanics. And, uh, here we are all these years later and we're still talking about it. Yeah. And I'll tell you what it's precipitous. Is that a good word? Love that. You, you never, you never know when paths are going to cross in the short and long term. But the bottom line is, I bet I bet you the little lefty I saw throw that day, your son, he's got to be 13, uh, 12. He's yeah, he's 11. So he was so he was like five or six at that. Okay. Yeah, five or six. So, yeah, he's uh, he's 11 and plays travel ball. And I'm we're going to get into it because, Tom, if I I got a lot of travel ball questions, I got a lot of usage questions and we're going to get Perfect. to it. Before we do, I, I mean, I'm obviously very familiar with your backstory. You know, everyone knows, you know, your time with Nolan Ryan, your, t- you know, coaching Randy Johnson, some of the biggest names in baseball. And then you make this really unique shift into the world of football and you, you know, Tom, you know, Tom Brady and Drew Brees, just give our listeners for anyone who isn't as familiar as I am with your background and what you do, just give everybody a little backstory on how you've become, you know, this quote unquote guru of modern, you know, pitching and throwing mechanics and all the work you do currently. That's a great setup. I'd like to say it was well thought out, planned, and organized. It just kind of happened generically. Um, I had been a pitching coach. Well, I, was, I pitched in the big leagues and was uh, a coach right out of the shoot right after I got released. And we'd always thrown the football as part of our cross training as a baseball pitcher because it was heavier than a baseball. There was conditioning. And you can't throw a football wrong and make it spiral. So it was what we call a cross-specific uh, training device. And then as luck would have it, Cam Cameron, who was the offensive coordinator for the San Diego Chargers way back when, uh, had two boys that played baseball, kind of like what you're going through. And he said, uh, at one of the workouts with his kids, he said, you ever work with quarterbacks? And I said, well, we've filmed a bunch of quarterbacks. We have them in the computer but I've never worked with a quarterback. He said, well, I got a youngster named Drew Brees that I'd like to introduce you to and just see what happens. And that was actually the beginning. Not, not well thought out, but there was a guy, Cam Cameron, who saw baseball and football, and maybe there was a fit. And I don't know if you remember, if you're old enough, but Drew had a horrific injury uh, the year he was playing out to become a free agent. And uh, Dr. Andrews put him back together, called me and said, well, I, I fixed his shoulder, but I don't think he's ever going to play in the NFL again. And with that, uh, when Drew came back from the surgery, I got involved in rehab. So not only did we look at his mechanics, but we looked at how you functionally strength train and all that weird stuff you see on TV with the, 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 the DAX dance and all that kind of stuff. That was the beginning of it right there. And when Drew came back and was very successful, you, you know very well in football, that quarterback fraternity is really small. And one thing leads to another, and pretty soon I've got Drew and Brady and Alex Smith and quarterbacks just started showing up. And the fun thing is the only difference between football and baseball throwing is the length of the arm path and the fact that football players have to get rid of the ball way sooner than a pitcher does, but everything else is about the same. So uh, obviously getting it in the computer, looking at it at a thousand frames a second, and then actually having my first real client be Drew Brees was how I stumbled into it. Well, it's not a bad first client. I think for anyone, I think if anyone wants to start out in something, I think starting with one of the best of all time. So Kudos to you. And, and we're going to get into some of the, the technique and the specific stuff, but I want to start with just your, your, and I follow you on Twitter for anyone who doesn't, it's a great follow aside from just, you know, you sharing your warm up routine, you know, youth pitch counts and all some really cool stuff that I use for my kids and my teams. I want to talk just a little bit about your approach to working with, of course, working with Drew Brees, 
but in all your time working with youth athletes as a coach, you know, what is your approach? How do you balance today's really ultra competitive world of youth sports? And these kids are asked to play in a lot of games and perform at a high level, but then also find the balance of the developmental component, keeping in mind that this is a long journey, right? We always say when I'm coaching, you know, my kids, fifth and sixth, fifth grade teams, fourth grade teams, I'm trying to have them be a really good player on their middle school team. And then hopefully their middle school coach is saying, I'm developing you that one day you can be on the high school team. Like where is that balance today? And what is your approach between competition and going out there and playing at a high level, but then also understanding there's a developmental component when you're working with young athletes. Well, you're setting me up perfectly here, Greg. I appreciate it. No problem. The, The power of play. I mean, kids play whether they're in organized sports or not. And in today's world, you know how chaotic the world is today, especially for teenagers and younger. It's a completely different existence than when you and I went through playing sports. So in today's world, I I say there's one set of rules, but there's a million interpretations. And every kid that shows up is showing up because he, he likes to play first. I mean, Tom Brady at age 45 is just a big 12-year-old. He still gets joy from playing. And one of the hardest things in today's world is artificial intelligence kind of can, can kind of take the joy out of the interpersonal stuff that's involved with being on a team or in a sport. Even if you're just like a golfer by yourself, you're still enjoying, it's what I call ignition. The, the fact that you really want to be out there doing what you're doing. And then you have to, you have to realize there's windows of trainability. Um, the, there, there's a neurological window. There's a muscle window. There's a biomechanical efficiency window. And then there's a skill retention window. And depending on the age of the athlete that shows up, you have to approach them differently. And you mentioned it earlier. It, it's okay to be really, really good at 12 years old but it's really not the priority at 12. At 12, you have to have fun first and then make sure that the nervous system kind of understands what it's supposed to do. When testosterone hits, then you can start talking about muscle. If you try to strength train a nine-year-old, he's probably not going to be as efficient as if you just let him alone and let him work on his nervous system. Conversely, um, if you're, you know, pushing heavy weights on a skinny freshman in high school at age 14, he, he may actually hurt himself in the weight room. So you have to be careful about what you're asking out of the athlete in the preparation to become, to go between the lines and play and have fun while they're playing. And in today's game, there's so much information out there. And you mentioned being on Twitter. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody, you know, everybody has what you think should be done. What I try to tell people that come our way, we're science-based, we're measurable and defendable. And for every one of the things we identify, we have a deliverable that will help teach either the nervous system, the muscular system, or the skill acquisition or the skill retention. So long story short, you train nerves first, then muscle, then nerves and muscles talk together, which are put together for skill acquisition. And then as you get older and, and into your golden years, skill retention is what the four windows of trainability are. So every kid that shows up, like if, if your son, left-handed pitcher, if I remember correctly, he shows up as a you know an eighth grader or a freshman in high school, will obviously look at his chronological age but if he's grown, if he's going to be a big kid like you, if he's grown two or three inches in the last six months, for every one inch of height gain and for every five pounds of weight gain, it pushes you back two years or two months in your biological age. So your boy might be 13, but if he's grown six inches and gained gain 10 pounds, he's really only 12 and a half. Does that make sense? That's really interesting. Talk, talk a little bit more about that. I, I think our, our parents, you know, and, and families that are listening to this, I think the question I get asked the most is how do, and you just touched on it a little bit. I'm going to ask you to just expand a little bit. They ask us like, when is too early to really focus on like physical training and right. you know, whether that's at the young age, push-ups, sit-ups, medicine balls, you know, functional movement stuff, right. right. Not necessarily traditional weight room, you know, and then in middle school, the kids start hitting puberty. They start growing, they start maturing. 
you know, how do we then take that next step and go along with the skill retention, the skill development of, you know, particular sport, baseball, basketball, football, whatever it is. So like if you, you broke down the four windows of the development, but now how does that tie into what you're saying now about maturity, puberty, growth, like this time, this age that we're in now, this 11, 12, 13, there's kids that are six, one, and there's kids that are four foot eight. How do we, as coaches and parents manage to coach a team, develop a team when we now have kids that are really at different ages in this kind of developmental process? Well, and that's one of the hardest things for people to understand right now. It's really, really cool if your 16-year-old child is the best athlete in the league, but it really isn't important that he's really good at 16. It's how good is he going to be when he actually hits maturity and can go into college or pro ball. So every kid that shows up on your team is obviously in a different state. And, you know, you've, you've seen it when, when you were growing up. I, I can remember, um, I'm drawing a blank on his last name, but Doug was like a six foot two inch Italian kid that he'd, he'd probably been shaving since he was three. And he was really a stud until everybody caught up with him and he never got any better. So what you have to realize is it's not necessarily size. It's where they are with their chronological versus biological age. And the, the, the numbers are, are, are easy to figure out if you'll just be patient and assume as a coach or a parent that you're going to teach a kid the mechanics and the strength of a position, what is necessary. Like you could strength train a 10-year-old with heavy weights, but it wouldn't do him any good at all. And if, if you don't strength train when a kid is 16 or 17 years old, his arm speed and his arm strength may not match up and he'll hurt himself that way. So what I would recommend to parents, if at all possible, and coaches that actually care about giving one set of rules to a million different kids is to be aware of what is out there. And it's not about outcome. It's about process. And the hardest thing, even for a little league dad that's volunteering to be a coach, you get competitive and you want to win. But winning or outcome has to be secondary to process. And there's going to be failure. Another thing that is not addressed enough in our, in our society right now is parents suffer as much in the stands when they see their kid fail as the kid does on the field. But you know as well as I do, you played football for a long time. You're going to screw up. You know, you're going to fail at times. And what you have to look at is failure is, is a learning experience. We will learn more from our screw-ups than we do our successes. And that has to be literally ingrained in a youngster when he's a little leaguer or that 9, 10, 11-year-old that you're, you're, you're going to fail. You're going to feel bad. It's okay to feel bad. But if you learn from it and fail less, the guys that get in the big leagues have probably failed more than anybody else that's watching them on TV but they didn't let the outcome get in the way of the joy and learning from the failure. So something we talk a lot about here, Tom, and and I'm so glad you brought up failure is I think as parents and as coaches in today's modern kind of sports world, there's so many teams at so many different levels. You can really create an environment where your child is always protected. He's always going to be the best player on his team. He's always going to be put in a situation to have success. My approach is always the opposite. I want my kid. I want my kid at 10 and 11 to stand on the mound and have a tough outing and deal with adversity and not have his best stuff. And let's, I'd rather it happen then because it's going to happen to your point at some point. I don't want it to happen when he's 18. I don't want it to happen the right. first time he pitches on You're his varsity exactly team. Right. So like, how do we encourage parents? Cause it's the parents you're spot on. And I'm, I'm guilty of this at times too. How do we encourage parents to let their child perform and play in maybe a, a level of competition that might be a little outside their reach all understanding that any little minor setback, if handled the right way, will allow your child to deal with these setbacks and deal with adversity when it matters, which is in high school and when you're a little bit older and the stakes are a little bit higher. Like, how do we get that message across? Well, again, at at your age and with kids your age, you're very aware that we live in a helicopter parent society. Our, Our parents realize that outcomes are what kids get college scholarships and or pro contracts or get drafted or whatever. Outcomes are important. But what they don't realize is that 
process is manageable. Outcomes you have no control over. So what I, what I try to do, and my favorite group to work with is really the 9 to the 12-year-old kids, the, the under 13 athletes, because they're just starting to understand that, that failure hurts. But it, if, like my mom used to say, if it doesn't kill you, it's a good experience. And anybody can go good. But the kids that fail fast forward, I use that as much as I can. The kids that aren't afraid to screw up and they're actually playing for a coach that when they do screw up, ask why. Now, that's important. You don't judge a failure. You ask, why did you fail? And the millisecond that you ask the youngster why he screwed up, and it forces him to think about the process and not the feeling that went with a failure then that youngster will deal with failure better as he progresses through the system. And it's the kids that can handle adversity and the ones that understand empathy and that you're going to have issues and the ones that can feel not only bad for themselves, but when the team loses, they feel bad for the team. Um, that's the athletes that's going, to move, that's going to move forward. In today's society, you said it best, these, a lot of these kids are protected by parents that really care. I mean, the intentions are good, but it doesn't help your child progress through the system and the competition of sports in itself. So long story short, if everybody realized that failure is part of the process and that the more you fail, the faster you fail, the better you're going to figure out what to do to, to not fail. Those are the kids that continue to move forward because they don't lose the joy of playing because of the bad feeling of failure. Did that make sense? Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And, and again, I, I try to get that point across. I have three kids, two boys and a, and a daughter. The boys play. My, my oldest son plays ultra competitive baseball. Like his team is one of those teams that they're come summer next year. They're going to be flying to East Cobb and to Florida and they're going to be playing in all these big shows. They just, so they're really good. They're very good. Yeah. Like last year, last summer, they went to the perfect game um, world series in East Cobb down in Marietta. There was 68 right, right. teams. That was, they were 10. It was 10 U at the time. And um, there were 68 teams and they made the championship. They lost in the finals wow. to a team out of Georgia, but like they're very good. Their coach is excellent. Yeah. Um, it's been really nice. They have a, I don't have to coach. I can be dad. The coach does an unbelievable job with them They're But again, it's ultra competitive. You are expected right. to play. Well, you don't play well. You move down the lineup. You don't continue to hit. You're out of the lineup. You sit, you don't, not everyone plays like it is, but it's what we signed up for. It's what my kid. Exactly. And what you just said is, is kind of lost on this younger generation. Sports are outcome oriented sports. Uh, literally you have to perform. It's, it's a meritocracy and that's the lesson that will help them in the real world. Also the, and I, I, I hate to, to get on someone that's trying to do the right thing that doesn't quite get it, but participation trophies um, for me, send it, send the wrong message to a kid Yeah, that in the, in this world, not everybody's going to be a big leaguer, but everybody can be the best that they can be. And if you're passionate about a sport and you're not good enough to play, it's better to figure it out earlier rather than later. And I have a, st a stat to throw at you just in case, because if your 10, 11 year old is ultra competitive and they're winning wherever they go, 92% of the Hall of Famers in all sports were late bloomers. I call it the Michelle Wee effect. She, she literally was a better athlete at age 16 than she is now on the LPGA Tour. But she never got any better mechanically or physically than she was when she was 16. Con conversely, a young Nolan Ryan, he really didn't put it together until he was 23, 24. Um, so you have to be patient with the process of maturity on one end. There's, there's four things that allow an individual athlete to perform at the higher level. His biomechanics, his or her functional strength, their mental emotional makeup, how they handle adversity and failure, and then nutrition and sleep for recovery. And if the parents and coaches that are on our little chat this morning, every kid that shows up 
should be looked at with those four things, mechanics, strength, mental, emotional, and nutrition and sleep. And then you've got something, no matter where the kid is on the spectrum of talent, as he develops his skill and grows into it, he will be the best he could be individually. And that will help the team. It's so funny because these are the conversations. My, my oldest um, is not overly big. He's not like a big, strong, physical kid. He's not the fastest kid. He's not the tallest kid. He doesn't hit the ball the farthest. Like he's just not at that developmental stage. Like both me and my wife are big people, tall, you know, relatively tall, but um, he's just not that. And my, my two younger, my twins that are in fourth grade are very tall. They're long. So they're just, again, they're built very different. But, and so my, my oldest son, he feels it, right. There's bigger kids on his team. It's a competitive team, very different than, you know, my, my youngest son's baseball team is like a local travel team and we've gotten them a lot better. Everybody plays it's developmental. Now we want to win. We go out there and win, but like, there's no aspirations that we're going to go win like some tournament in California, right? Like it's, it's a very, it's appropriate for him and it's appropriate for the kids on the team. And the same thing with my daughter. But my point is, and I had these conversations along the lines of what you just said with my son, I said, be the, not being the big kid now doesn't better. It doesn't matter, right? We need to focus on your mental. So this is our conversation I have. And it's so similar to what you just said. Our priority is my number one thing is I want to see you compete. I want to right. see you fight through adversity. I want to see you compete and don't let me ever see you back down and quit if things aren't going your way. To me, that's number one rule. You strike out 50 times in a row. I can live with it. I won't be thrilled, but we can live with it. But if after every time you throw your helmet and you slam your bat and you act or you get on the mound and you walk two kids and you don't have your best stuff and you crumble... I have no patience for that. So we are going to com- we are going to be ultra competitors. We are going to keep our emotions in check and we are going to fight through adversity. Our second goal, our second big thing we harp on is we're going to do things correctly. And even if the right. outcome isn't great, this you know how many times my kid will say, "But dad, I hit it, but I had a base hit." I said, "Fine, but like let's look at how your swing." I said, "Give yourself a chance." So my point is Along those lines, like that's our approach. And then my, my message to him is one day, if you have little man skills and you turn out to be big, then you're a big kid with little man skills. Exactly. And that, you know, you're, you're ahead of the game. You, you basically, you go to the ballpark every day, preparing yourself to be the best you that you can be. I got real lucky when I, I went to the university of Southern California on a baseball scholarship and my first bullpen I'm throwing my little left-hander or whatever it is that I throw. And the guy next to me who I had never met but heard about was a guy named Tom Seaver. And I looked at him and I said, oh, my (laughs) God. Now, the kids or the parents that are listening to this, they may or may not remember who Tom Seaver was. But Tom Terrific was probably one of the best right-handed pitchers in the history of baseball. And fortunately, Rod Dato, our head coach, came up and said, Tommy House, what do you think of young Tom Seaver? And I said, Rod, if you need me to do that, you got the wrong left-hander. <laughs> and here's the message that Rod gave me, very similar to what you tell your kids. He said, Tom, I don't need you to be Tom Seaver. I need you to be, I need you to be the best Tommy House you can be. Throw that curveball, throw that stinker, get your ground ball, hold runners close, and you'll both play and win for the Trojans and have a chance to play some pro ball. So... Rod at that time took all the pressure of me trying to be Tom Seaver and made me realize that all I had to do when I went to the ballpark is try to be the best prepared Tom House that I could be. And that so, takes that takes a lot of pressure off. Absolutely. And and I think we all as parents are guilty of this, right? You want to compare, did you see Johnny? We need to do it more like him. Or did you see and we all and we all have to remind like I know per, again. On this show, I'm the first to admit a lot of the things I talk about or I'm guilty of. And we all have. I mean, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't watch my son play. I had to go hide behind the left field fence and look at the game through the cracks because it drove me nuts with either what the coach was doing or what my son was doing. But remember, as parents, it's not about you. It's about your kid. No so, and let me throw something else at you. You're aware that your children, because of who you are, go to the ballpark with a whole different set of pressures because you know having your name on their back um, makes it a little bit difficult but 
if they get through that, the kids are always better than the dad. So fasten your seatbelt. They're coming. Hey, I'd be thrilled. I, I, and I tell them that all the time. I said, you don't have, you owe nobody anything. You don't owe me anything. You, you owe yourself, right? Like right. maximize your own gifts. My, my, I tell my kid all the time. I remind him, I said, what's the saddest thing in the world? And he would say, wasted potential. I said, right. that's it. I said, just don't waste it. All right, I want to change gears a little bit. You've talked a lot about process. And to me, this is the really fascinating part of kind of where the youth sports landscape. So we'll look at it through that lens, you know, high school and, and below. I want to talk a little bit about, and it's a little baseball specific right now. So our, our baseball families are going to love this. You've been really the, the person who's kind of pioneered this whole concept of you don't throw to warm up, you warm up to throw. And, and I, and it's a baseball term, it's a throwing term, but I think it really goes across all sports, right? How often do you see you go into a basketball gym and what do they do first? Layup lines. Well, no, they've been sitting around in the gym waiting for the, so just talk a little bit about, you know, from the biomechanic, just from the way the body works and gets warm. Like talk a little bit about that process of preparing your child or preparing the team you coach of young kids, the process of preparing them to be ready to compete. Okay, perfect. Uh, Again, you're setting me up perfectly here. You warm up to loosen up to do your activity. You prepare to compete, to recover and repeat. So keep that in your head. It's harder on a little leaguer's arm. If you watch most little league games, when the kids get there, they'll get a a ball and a buddy and they'll go out and they'll start playing catch right out of the car. That's actually harder on their arm you know, throwing before they've loosened up to warm up, that's harder on their arm than actually pitching in a ball game. So the process, and again, if it sounds like I know what I'm talking about, it's only because I screwed it up enough to know what doesn't work. And now we have the research to support what's coming out of my mouth. There are, we, we call it block training. The first block should be core temperature elevation. And I'll give a plug to the the National Pitching Association and to Mustard. If you go to either one of those websites, there's a process. The first block, block number one, is core temperature elevation. And there's five or six exercises that any thrower can do, pitcher, quarterback, infielder, whoever it might be. The, The second block is arm care and recovery. And this is before they've gone to play catch on the field or take infield or whatever. Arm care and recovery has four or five little exercises. I don't know if you remember what, when you see the oh, quarterbacks yeah. doing this. We do it That's, at every one of our practices. If my kid picks up a ball and doesn't do the whole thing, walking, alternating it, I will, perfect. I'll kill him. So he's right at, right at the head of the curve on this one. It, literally arm care and recovery is second block. The third block, if you have the time is body work. And that's where you use uh, anything from arm presses to arm circles to planks, something that wakes the whole body up physically. And then the the fourth block is, the big word is kinematic sequencing. But basically you go through exercises that are specific to what you do when you pitch, range of motion stuff. And there's three or four that go over there. And then you go warm up. To, to either start the game or take infield. So if you follow that process and you don't have to do everything in every block every day, you cherry pick depending on time available and the motivation of the kids. Remember, uh, kids can get bored really quick, even if they're passionate about the game. So you have to keep challenging them with doing things, either you know the same idea, different application or a new application of, of a better idea. So all that puts together, but if, if the parents and the coaches could remember one thing, you warm up to loosen up, to do your activity. I, I think, and it's, and I've taken it to heart. I mean, as I mentioned, I follow, so just so everyone knows they can go to mustard. We're going to talk about mustard. Cause I am a subscriber of mustard, which has nothing to do with having you on here. Just as a dad, I put my kids to three different angles of pitching and all that and to get the report. It's really cool. And then of course you mentioned the national pitching association. So that all those resources, people, you guys can go on, you can follow everything Tom just said it's there is that, now correct me if I'm wrong. Another element to why I'm such a big believer in this, this process of getting ready. We do the same warm up routine 
before games that we do before practices. And I'm and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think aside from just the physical preparation, loosening up your body, your core temperature, activation, all that stuff, there's also a mental component where my prep before practice is the same as the game. So to my brain, right? I always tell the kids, your brain doesn't know how important what you're about to do is. Is it a bullpen in April? Is it a bullpen in December? Or is it the bottom of the sixth championship, state championship, your senior year? You oh, So like there's a process of like routine that builds confidence and builds kind of there, a- There's your magic right? word. I, I'll tell you what, you, I don't know how much research you've done, but you said everything exactly the way I would set it up routines are huge not only in preparation for like a practice but also a preparation for a game a world series a super bowl whatever it might be and the more consistent your routine the better able you are to handle stress you have to be careful about routine becoming um where, where if you feel like you don't do something you're, you're not, in other words, you don't want to get obsessive compulsive about yeah. it. When, when, I had a little when of that routine yeah. becomes ritual. And I know all of us, I, I would only turn one way on the mound. When, <laughs> when, a, when a ritual takes over your brain, the obsessive compulsive parts of what we did as athletes, it's probably not real good. So rem- remember this, and you can share it with your kids and, and maybe the parents that you talk to. You're in charge of a routine. A ritual is in charge of you. And there's a fine line between telling a a young player that this routine is necessary for your body to get the most out of what you're doing today. But when you feel like if you miss doing a push-up, that you're going to be less than when you go between the lines, that, that ritual is, that routine has become a ritual and you can't let kids do that. That's so, that's so awesome. I'll tell you a personal story along the routine thing. So it's kind of the, the bad that sets up the good. A couple of weeks ago, I'm out of town on the weekends during the fall. So I don't, right. I don't get to see my kids playing a lot of the games. So two weeks ago, my oldest son was playing in a tournament and he called me between games and he's like, dad, I'm going to pitch. Like they played, they played the first bracket play game. Then he was going to pitch game two. And I said, like, all right, man, well, you know, and I started going into like, Hey, remember your routine, make sure you get warmed up, but don't just start throwing blah, 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 blah. He hears it all the time. But all he wanted to do is talk to me about everything else. Dad, I, you know, in a million different directions, mind you, he's 11. And I said, Hey man, you got to get yourself. This is like 30 minutes for the game. I'm like, all right, that's all great. Long story short, he goes out there, doesn't pitch his best struggles, his command. He's not, his off-speed pitches are in the dirt. He's just, he's not as he's typically pretty consistent. He was not. So that night, he calls me and he's feeling down. And I asked him, I said, let me ask you something. I said, when me and you spoke on the phone for two and a half minutes, 30 minutes before you were about to start, where was your mindset? Like, where was your concerns? And at first he didn't know what I was talking about, but I explained, I read back what he said to me. And I don't know if at the time he like recognized it, but this past weekend they were playing in like a big NIT tournament here. And it was the same thing. He was going to pitch game two on Sunday, the semifinal game and his approach to his routine. My wife was like te- texting me what he was doing in the outfield and his warm up and his prep and his bullpen and all that. And he went out and he pitched a complete game. And at, my point is that night, I didn't say, Hey, you didn't become a good pitcher. You didn't learn how to pitch in two weeks. The team you pitched good against was better than the team that you struggled against. I said, what was the difference? And he goes, how I got myself ready to go out on the mound. And he got I said, that that's it. At, at 11 years old, he got that's that. It. It's well, I beat his head against the wall about routine. I don't really harp on him on the outcome. Like, of course we all want our kids to hit a home run every time and strike everybody out. But like my biggest thing is if your command is off, why? Like, is your glove, you know, not to get everyone bored. Can you you say that again? If your command is off, is off, ask yourself why, why? Yep. And what experience is, is having been out there enough, with success and failure, that when you ask yourself why, you've got an answer. And if you don't have an answer, you go. Ha- you have to go find somebody that does. Now, let me tell you something about brain chemistry. And this is preparing you for when your kid becomes a teenager. Um, do you know what cognition is? Basically, it's an understanding of the process that you need to do to get an outcome. Okay. Well, the amygdala 
in a teenage boy's brain is where everything is a central clearinghouse for all the emotions, all the stuff, all the information, all the instruction is centrally located and sent to the frontal cortex. Be aware that a teenage boy has no frontal cortex. They have huge input. Their brain is like this big ocean of stuff that's looking for a way to be directed. And they'll get through it at the expense of driving dads and coaches nuts. <laughs> yes. Well, you just when described you ask my life. <laughs> why, and they look at you like you have spinach on your teeth, you have to be patient with the fact that even though it's floating around in their brain, they don't know why either. So your, your job is to I help know. them basically navigate this amygdala delivering a message to the frontal cortex for a good decision. I see you smiling. Why? Because you're describing you were, my life. At, at 16, <laughs> 17 years old, you were no better than any other teenage boy. True. Be patient with the process. The magic word, Greg, is why. When you can get a teenage boy to ask himself why, that gets him back into where thinking and feeling match up. Okay. And that's literally how you compete at the higher level. That's when so your important. Thought process and your feeling process don't outweigh each other, that's when you get the most out of your body. And using your son's success and failure as a comparison allows him to connect some dots and don't get cocky because he'll forget it, you know, in two months. But at least the why gets him back into the cognitive awareness of what it takes to throw, basically throw strikes in competition. Yeah, and, and to me, and I say this all the time, that those lessons right there, I have no ask, I have no like false notions that my kids are playing youth baseball or my daughter's playing youth soccer because they're going to be professional soccer players. If they become good high school players, that would be wonderful. But to me, the lessons through all these sports success and failures, they're just connect. You mentioned connecting the dots. They're connecting the dots for the rest of their life in things that have nothing to do with sports. It's just the greatest vessel for young kids to learn these things in our country just happens to be through athletics. But yeah, to to me, that's the entire reason we kill ourselves with all this youth sports is so that they start connecting those dots and start learning these lessons. And if you can connect two dots here as a parent or a coach, you know, the process of why and then the outcome doesn't define you. It's, it's huge for, like I got lucky because my parents knew nothing about sports. I come home and I say, Hey mom, I threw a no hitter today. She said, great. Did you get an A in English? <laughs> I go, then I walk into my dad and I said, Hey dad, I popped a no hitter today. He said, great. How did you do that? I'm going, ah, so, so because we weren't judged by outcome because my parents really didn't know a whole lot about sports. I was never caught up in the fact that I struck out X amount of guys or I threw a no hitter. I always had to go home prepared to say, to answer the question, why? And was I still getting A's in school? So I think that helped me deal with failure much better than anybody at my age. And it's one of the reasons I was able to be stay competitive, even though, even though I wasn't physically a prospect. Well, that, that mental approach is so much more, right? I mean, the great, the greatest players of all time have the physical and the mental approach. But if you, if you had to just pick one, if you told me you could either have a mentally tough competitive and find any way to do it, or just a kid who was blessed with everything, but had a lazy mentality, I would take the mental approach. If I couldn't have, I would ideally like both, but if I had to just pick one, I'd pick the kid who just had the approach, the routine, the mental toughness to battle, to find the answers, to find out why he's failing over the naturally talented kid any day of the week. Yeah, the mentally tough, slightly skilled athlete will always win over the great, the great athlete that isn't mentally prepared. So the, 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 the bottom line is every kid is different playing the same sport, and you kind of have to deliver a message through a team environment where that youngster is going to get nurtured with his passion for the game. Uh, have you have you heard the word ignition? Yeah. When it it's comes, like what, okay. Yeah, it's like your Kickstarter. What you're searching for as a yeah. parent or a coach is finding ignition in the kids you're working with, and that ignition in baseball, even if they never or football or whatever the sport is, 
even if they don't play on the collegiate level or the pro level, that passion for what they were doing in the high school days will carry them for a lifetime as far as self-esteem, understanding what the process does, that it's the best team doesn't always win, the best prepared team wins. Those lessons, while it sounds trite, still hold up. And you, we're seeing it in the baseball playoffs right now. The most talented teams in this last um, wild card thing, most talented teams, two of the four teams didn't, didn't make it. The better prepared teams did. And there's a lesson to be learned. The hardest thing is that as a parent or a coach, I talked about it a little. I, I would, it would tear me up to see my son strike out with the bases loaded. I mean, it probably hurt me or bothered me way more than it bothered him. But you have to realize it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about your kid or the athlete that you're working with. And you mentioned something earlier. I don't know if you remember, but you said uh, your oldest boy has found a coach that just gets it. Your, your, your athlete, as a parent, you should really do a screening that your child is playing with a coach that knows how to nurture young people. Because if it becomes about the coach and winning and losing, it's going to be a, a bad experience. And a bad experience will actually cost a kid more than actually failing himself and not having an answer. So if I could, coaches that are listening to us talk right now, or parents, you know, look at yourself in the mirror if you're a coach. Is it about the kid or is it about you? And as a parent, don't let what your kid is doing between the lines make or break your ego as a parent because your job as a parent is to put them in a situation where they can succeed and help them when they don't. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Winning, winning is a byproduct. Winning is a byproduct yes. of every yes. single thing we do at the youth level. Now, you get up to some of the higher levels at the college and the collegiate. Yes, professionally, winning is the only objective. I get well, that. Yeah, it's what you have a job for. Us to of course. Win. But at the young level, and I say this to all our teams, we coach our kids. Now, Tom, we coach our kids hard. Like our tackle football team that we coach, it's hard. It's demanding. Because it has to be, right? You're trying to coach 25 kids to play tackle football. And there's a lot going on. But at the end of the day, our message to them is we are not going to win because we make winning a priority. We are going to win because we are going to force you guys and encourage you guys and hold you guys to such a standard that you're going to do so many more things right than the other team we're playing. And as a result, we're going to win. Yeah. You're That's better it. prepared than the opposing team. You'll have a better chance to have a positive outcome. No doubt. There's still no guarantee. No. But when you go between the lines, if you're the best prepared that you can be as an individual and a team, then your chances for a positive outcome are increased exponentially. No doubt. It, this, this last thing, and I'm going to let you go. The, the, I want to ask you the questions that people ask me that I don't have an answer to. Sure. And this is very specific to baseball. Okay. So the biggest thing we see at this competitive level of baseball is there's young kids throwing curveballs. There's young kids throwing over the course of a four day tournament. You could throw a hundred pitches, right? right? Like there's now there's pitching rules. Every tournament we has has pitching rules. And I've never been around a coach, whether it was a coach I work with or a coach of just somebody who coaches my kids who I've ever seen abuse any of our players. Right. But your best kids are going to throw a hundred pitches in a weekend at 10 years old. And they're going to throw breaking balls. My, my own kids do it. My, sure. Give me some, like, what are the messages that we can tell these concerned parents who on one side, they want their kid to be challenged. They want to go play in these tournaments. They want to play a lot of, you know, we could play seven, eight, nine games in a five day weekend sure. in these big, what is the balance between putting your kid in those competitive environments and letting them, letting them learn to compete and learn to battle, but then also understanding there are limitations at their age and how do we manage, you know, pitches and arm care and arm count and overworking playing 12 months a year versus seasonal. Like when I was growing up, like all these things that are floating around specifically baseball, I don't have the answers to what's the best way to handle it. I'll, I'll tell you where the research has taken me. And I've been, in, I've been blessed to be a part of it for pitch age specific pitch totals. Go to ASMI.org 
and Glenn Fleissig did, did the, the collection of all the research. It will give you age-specific pitch totals per inning, per game, per week, per month, and per season. And they're basically within parameters that will allow a, a team to be competitive, even though they, the, their best pitcher can't throw every day. So age-specific pitch totals, ASMI.org, it's all there. As far as curveballs, curveballs thrown properly are actually the easiest pitch to throw. It's easier on the arm. But if there's any twisting motion or snapping motion with the, figure, with the fingers, that's very hard on the elbow. So make sure if you're going to allow your kids to throw curveballs that they're taught the correct way. And again, you can go to Mustard or NationalPitching.com to get the correct way to throw a curveball. And then uh, I'm trying to think of the other thing you asked. Oh, in, in a given year. Yeah, in a given year. That's a big thing a right now. Year, yep. You want to throw year round, but there has to be some time in every pitcher's year where he takes two to three months off from the mound. Okay. So our young athletes pitch too much. They don't throw enough. So you can throw year round on flat ground, but you got to give yourself two to three months, depending on workloads, to stay off the mound, if that makes sense. So, so you're doing mon- long, long toss? That recovery period. Say like long, long toss? Short, like are there are there distances based on your age in the off season that you encourage kids to throw at, even though it's yeah, all flat ground. There's all kinds of programs out there yep. on long toss, and you can follow follow the bouncing ball. Uh, we have a really good uh, yep. long toss program. Alan Jager has one. What I found is long toss is as far as you can throw perfectly on a line. Um, some people believe you have to throw as far as you can. Don't worry about your mechanics. Basically, when you're throwing long toss, it's to tolerance, thrown as far as you can, perfectly. And if you're throwing long toss a day after, you say your son threw four innings yesterday, long toss today might only be 70 feet. If he hasn't thrown for a week, long toss might be 120 feet. Okay. But it's how far can you throw perfectly. And and that leads me to my last thing. And I, and. Again, I'm a user of it. I'm a subscriber. I've signed up and I know it's a big program. Um, Clayton Kershaw. I mean, you got some really cool people. You've mentioned it a few times, but we always want to leave our listeners with tools, with resources, with, okay, where does the conversation go after you listen to listen to our conversations here? Like, where do you go find this information? We're going to share the right. websites on it. We'll share the websites you've provided, but I also want you to talk a little bit about mustard. And I want you to talk a bit, a little bit because I think it's a great tool as someone who's used it with his two young sons, you know, just to really have someone take a biomechanical look at little things. Sure. You might not fix it all, right? They're, they're young, but it's just a nice starting point. So maybe just talk a little bit about why you started Mustard, what you think the, the, the biggest benefit that it has to families and coaches as they kind of grow up with their young children in, in baseball or, you know, whatever they're doing. That would be great. And you use the correct word. It's a tool. What we were looking at is our elite athletes, the guys that have $30,000 for emotion analysis, have access to everything that's out there in the world. How can we democratize what we give to our elite guys for the mom and dad of a 12-year-old daughter or son? So what we did with the creation of Mustard is we came up with a technology, and I've surrounded myself with some really smart people. We had the model based on almost a thousand pitchers and around 180 elite quarterbacks were throwing. And what we did is we took what we would normally do in a laboratory with the light sensitive dots and a three dimensional motion analysis capture and allowed a parent that had a cell phone to film from the two angles, send that data to the cloud and come back with a motion analysis of their child's delivery based on our variables that will, that will give you the efficiency and point you in the direction to fix. So in effect, what we did, Greg, was democratize what the elite guys get and put it in the hands of a mom and dad of a 12-year-old. And it's probably the best thing I've ever done. And the, the, the cool thing is it's free. So there's no, reason to, there's no reason not to have a look at it. And if, if 
you want, take it to your coach or you could teach yourself. We've made it, if you've looked at it, we made it as simple as we possibly could. And the efficacy, it holds up. It's a pretty solid little tool. Yeah. I mean, I personally did it. Like you said, you do, you do three from one angle, which, you know, from the side, depending if your child's a righty or a lefty, you pick the appropriate side and then you do it from, you know, traditionally head on, like from the batter's box and you send it in. And then, you know, the thing, you know, I knew some of this stuff, right. The strong front side where, you know, don't, you know, a lot of people, I know you teach, bring your chest to your glove, as opposed to bring your, your glove back. You know, there's a couple different ways sure. people do it. The thing I thought was the coolest was how long the stride should be in relation to your height. And how, and when you guys measure and you talk about if your head is going down on your load, like when you pick up your knee and you drive home, if your head goes down too much, start in that position, bend your knees more and start in your ready. Like that to me was all little stuff that I genuinely found interesting. And I find, I find myself like reminding my kids like, Hey, bend in your set position. Or, you know, you talk about how you grip off speed pitches, sure. set your wrist in the glove. Don't right. set, you know, take stress off the arms. So like just, you. Yeah. Oh, trust me. I've, I've watched it. I've no, watched it's, it. It's awesome. If I was there, I'd give you a big hug. That's totally cool. Well, I'm uh one of these days you might have a, a DM with just a bunch of 10 and 11 year olds pitching mechanics. And I'm, I'm always have... welcome. Just give me a heads up. And we'll I'm kidding. Time. I know. Well, Tom, I, I can't thank you enough. This is a conversation, like I said, that I've been wanting to have with you since we kind of kicked around the idea of doing you think, and just to be able to bring families and coaches and kids, your expertise, your background, your experience, and allow them to kind of learn from it again, as a tool, as a resource, um, is just so beneficial to our journey here and our mission at you think. So just for you to take this time and share a lot of that with us is, has been a blast. Greg, I'll, I'll hang out with you anytime. So Done. just, just let me know. and We'll go for it. Okay. Well, be careful what you ask for. Cause I have a lot of questions. Oh, I'm, I'm counting on it. <laughs> I appreciate it, Tom. Your kid. Thank you. Take care. All right. See you later, Greg. Thank you, Tom. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Tom house as much as I enjoyed having it. It was, um, just really cool. Again, one of the guys that I knew in the beginning, like I needed him on this show. I, you know, if you follow him on Twitter, you can see he's constantly posting, you know, information on pitch counts and mechanics, his mustard app. I actually, well, before I had the conversation with him for you think, um, actually went on and subscribed and, you know, did a little pitching evaluation of my two boys. It's actually a pretty cool app the way they kind of, you know, kind of embed the biomechanics and the, you know, charting their body positioning and where they need to improve and whatnot. It's actually pretty interesting. It's a, it's a really cool tool. So Tom house. I mean, he's worked with some of the best throwers, right? I mean, not just, you know, baseball pitchers and obviously quarterbacks. Um, anybody who's in the world of throwing has been impacted and influenced by Tom house. And I think with today's world of, of young kids being exposed to, you know, playing more games and throwing and, you know, arm, you know, we see all these kids with elbow pain and shoulder problems and whatnot at a young age. Uh, I just think somebody like this that has such a wealth of experience and, and, and just has such a great background and making sure kids and, and are learning the games the right way, right. Are learning to do things the right way. So as they continue to build on that foundation, as they get older, they're doing it in a safe way and in a healthy way. And then also optimizing that they become the best player that they can. So really appreciate Tom house for taking some time to, to come chat with us. If you guys don't follow him on Twitter, he's a great follow and just an overall great guy and super smart. Um, highlight of the show right now, we are in a, Big Syracuse Orange. We're big fans here on the show. Tasha, what a weekend. I mean, I feel like every time we talk, it's just one big Syracuse win after another. If winning every game was easy, everybody would do it. That's true. I, my my dad said something interesting. He was like, since all of his years of coaching, there's only been three teams he's been on that have had a 6-0 start. So it's pretty, pretty rare. And yeah, everyone's excited. I got to go to the game this weekend, actually, in New York. So it was really fun. Does, but, does he attribute their success this year to our segments on the Syracuse Orange here on You Think? Does, has think, he made the connection yet? I mean, if he doesn't, I don't know what he's thinking. I think I think because we're talking about it, that's probably the reason why they're doing so well. We'll see. We have Clemson this weekend, so... All right, <laughs> so, so we here's the deal. About <laughs> they, beat, they beat Clemson. He's coming on next week's show. That's it. He has to. He I mean, has it's, to. He, you're, his, you're his daughter. Yeah, we. I think I could get him make on. Make it happen. <laughs> he would come on for you, please. He would. He would. Please. Um, yeah, all right. Well, so it's let, been fun. we're all following. We. You think has become a um, a Syracuse fan site. Yeah, organically. Stay, stay we're, tuned. We're enjoying the ride with them. 
Speaking of fans, <laughs> for fan questions, we have a good really one from good Brett. Really good segue. Yeah, really good segue. Good see segue. How I connected that. Really good. Um, we have Brett from Instagram says, when your kids have games at the same time, what do you do? That's that's tough. I'll tell you, that's a good one because every family goes through it. I, I can't tell you the last time like every family of one of the teams that my kids are on were like every family member was there. Typically the parents are, are split between the two. Um, and with us having three kids like Saturday mornings, this, like, for example, this upcoming Saturday, my, my oldest son will have his tackle football game. My daughter will have a soccer game at some point on Saturday. And then both the boys will start. They have a weekend long baseball tournament. So traditionally what we do is I go to the team that I'm helping with. So mm. right now in the fall, I'm coaching the football team. So I will, I always go to the football games. So if I miss my younger son, TJ's baseball games, there's other coaches that do it. And they kind of know the arrangement because my obligation in the fall is to the football team. So then the same thing in the spring, if I'm, co- I, if there's a conflict, I'll go to my son, my younger son's baseball team. Cause I help coach that one. And I won't go to my older son's team because I don't coach that one. And then typically what I do is at least every other or every couple of weeks, I'll miss the boys because obviously I want to go watch my daughter play soccer, even though I don't coach her team. So we kind of do our best that my wife will go to one and I'll go to the other and then we'll try to switch. And some of the multi-day sports, like if she takes one kid to their Saturday games on Sunday, she'll go to the others. And then, you know, my parents live here and they'll take, so we kind of divide and conquer fall it's the biggest challenge just because we've talked about this a lot there's the most sports going on but we typically default to whichever team i'm coaching that's the one that i go to my wife goes to the other and then we do our best to try to flip it the next time as long as there's no conflict with the team i'm coaching so it's it's hard most every couple we know are are not experiencing their child their children's games together for the most part that's kind of a bummer. You can't make fun of people's it's children. It's hard. It's just hard. I mean, it's even worse when you go out of town. Like if yeah. you have an out-of-town tournament, but one of your other kids has a local, like, in-town tournament, one parent, to, and it's not, you know, it's every family that we play sports with is dealing with this. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a challenge. I guess my advice to answer the question more directly would be just do your best to share time that you always see all of your children play, at least in some sort, some, some form or fashion. At times, you don't want to, it's easy to go to your oldest kid or it's easy to go to the travel team. It's easy, right? We all find ourselves gravitating towards one. Maybe it's more fun to watch or whatever, but mm. your kids know whether you're there or not. So you got to make sure you do everything you can to try to see all of them at least somewhat equally. That's good. The next one's from JP, also from Instagram. He says, how do you pick what hat to wear for each episode? How many baseball caps do you think you own? I own... <laughs> hundreds of baseball hats. A hundred. So it's a great question. I typically, as long as I remember, I typically go on recording days. I typically go, you think hat shout out to you think hat. Um, I collect minor league baseball hats. Like just happen to have one sitting here. So like I've worn this one a lot. It's the Columbia fireflies. I have, I, I That's really fun. think the like, yeah, like so if I go to a random city or go to a, like I'll go to like their local team store and New Era makes most of them and they just make cool hats and their logos are cool and they're fun and they do like special edition throwback ones. So like the local team here in Charlotte is a triple A uh, affiliate with the White Sox. They're the Charlotte Knights, but they do all sorts of different themes throughout the course of the year. So every time they do a theme, they come out with a, you know, one year they did like the Charlotte Pitmasters where they made like this cartoon like barbecue sandwich. So like there's all these fun Fun ones. Charleston uh, River Dogs has a bunch. When I was out in Seattle, I got some of the Washington, you know, minor league teams. And so as I go to these different cities, if they're affiliated and they have a a minor league baseball team and they have some cool hats, I pick them up as just kind of like a souvenir. And I have dozens and dozens of the hats. So the ones, a lot of the times I wear hats, I don't even know who the teams are. Hmm. Um, And people are like, oh, what team is that? I'm like, I don't know, but the logo is cool. You know, will there ever be a you think beanie? There should be a you think beanie. I think that would there be a should big be seller. a you think beanie. That's if a huge seller. It is winter. Yeah, we need to get on that. Winter is coming. It's getting cold um, here. I bet. I bet it is getting cold there. Not for people in LA though. 
Not anyway, like our Syracuse, last, but <laughs> only in Syracuse, yeah. Our last fan question is from Trisha from Instagram. She says, What is your opinion on playing time requirements in youth sports? Yeah, I think it's a good I think it's a good thing. I think um again, something we've talked a lot about here. It's all based on what you sign up for. Mm-hmm. If you're playing rec sports or through some sort of like rec organization and it's, you know, some sort of instructional, it's the first time a lot of these kids are playing. Like that's the way our football right now is set up. It's Pop Warner. It's through a local, um, it's called South Charlotte, um, South Charlotte Rec. And um, everyone has to play. There's minimum play requirements. They track it on the sideline. It's like a full procedure. And I think it's great. I mean, I think it's good. These kids for the most of them, including my own son, are playing for the first time. And how else do you learn and develop if you don't get opportunities to take what you do in practice and do it in the game in some capacity? So I think at that level, the you know first time playing at the introductory kind of rec level, I think it's great. I think the kids need those, need those experiences. They need those reps. Now, as you get to the other levels, and we've covered this, the travel ball, the more competitive, the tryout, you know, the quote unquote tryout type teams, I, I think the best kids should play. And if it's not a team that you're playing, your kid's not playing a lot, or it's not a team that you don't feel comfortable, the kids don't rotate enough, or they don't, then it's not the team for you. Then go find a different team. So like, again, I just think as long as everyone seeks out the team that best suits their own child's needs, their own family's desires, what they're looking to get out of sports, there's something for everyone, but you just have to be honest with what you're expecting. Don't want to be on the best travel ball team because you want to be able to tell all your friends, your kid made the soccer team or the baseball team but then you don't like that they run it like they run it, which is highly competitive and the best kids play. So there's something for everyone. Just be really smart on where you put your child. I think that would be my biggest advice to families and don't put your child in a spot that they are not comfortable in and don't pick, you know, don't pick a team or a coach or something that doesn't, you know, whose approach might not align with yours. And that's okay. You know, not everyone has to do things for everyone, but there, there are opportunities out there for everyone. And whether that's at a rec introductory, you know, introductory level, or it's at a hyper competitive, the best man wins. We do cuts, we do tryouts, whatever it is, or anywhere in between. It's all out there. Yeah, that's good. That's the worst when parents are on travel teams and then complain about playing time. You're like, you're on a competitive team. Uh, Yeah. If you don't want it, then then go to a different team. Like, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I always say, don't ask the team to change to suit your needs you need to go out and seek a team that fits your needs. You heard it here first. And um, that's all Quote the that. fan and audience questions. Put it on a t-shirt. Put it on a you think beanie. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's all the fan questions for today. Keep submitting them. Greg loves answering them at you think or at Greg Olson on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. I appreciate you guys as always, Tasha. Thank you. Good luck. Go mm-hmm. orange. Um, thank thank you. you guys so much for continuing to listen to us here on you think uh please continue to rate review subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and uh, we look forward we'll see you guys next week